0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Around Serie A in 20 Days. I am, as always, Michael Nimmo, the author and narrator of both the book and the podcast. Before we get going with today's episode, I'd just like to start with a wee apology. If you were enjoying the podcast and then surprised by the kind of disappearance of it, I'm sorry about that. I really did need to take a break, a little hiatus from recording the podcast. Um, But I'm back. I'm in a much better mood. The sun is shining and it's really far too hot. So in the next few weeks, I'll be hiding inside and trying to record all the rest. So, today's episode is me going to watch Lazio. Would I be able to understand who or what Giorgio Chinaglia is? Would I get stabbed? As a good friend from home, Doogie, suggested I try to do? B. B, probably. Well, let's find out as I go back to Rome. For now, ciao ciao. Making it out unpunctured, my trip to watch Lazio play Juventus. Back in the mists of time, but not so far back that anyone who could remember Hibbs winning the Scottish Cup was still alive, I told one of my friends back home, Doogie, that I was planning on writing this book. Apart from being supportive, He suggested that it'd be great for getting a bit of publicity if I could get stabbed at a match. Cheers, pal. Although bad luck can strike anywhere, the stabbiest supporters in Italy are Roma and Lazio. Having already seen Roma, and leaving unpunctured, this match, this weekend, was my last chance to get stabbed in the capital. I should add, more for my parents' benefit than anything else, that of course I wasn't actually expecting or even hoping to get stabbed for the book, or for any other reason for that matter, if at all possible. I'd forgotten about Doogie's suggestion until the train ride down to Rome, leaving me to reflect that if I have friends who recommend a stabbing as being a positive course of action, I guess I don't really need any enemies. I don't want to tar all Laziali with the same brush, because just as I found when watching Verona, reputations aren't always universally applicable. There is, however, a bit of history of visiting supporters getting stabbed in Rome, whether the team's playing Roma or Lazio, and often when they're English. Just as well I'm not English, really. Although, in a sticky situation, I'd prefer not to have to get a map out to point out the difference between Scotland and England. In 2001, 2006, 2007, 2009, and again in 2012, English supporters were attacked and stabbed while in Rome for football matches. Known in Roman dialect as Zaccagnare to stab, or puncicare, wound, this is the preferred way to hurt people. As John Foote, a professor of modern Italian history at University College London, and an author on Calcio, says, They target the buttocks because the victim is not likely to die. These people don't want to kill and be known as murderers. They want to show they can hurt their rivals and get away with it. The stabbings are now so frequent they are hardly reported in the Italian press, says Professor Foote. A rival fan is stabbed at nearly every Roma game, but it only hits the headlines when foreign fans are attacked at a game like the Champions League final. As far as I can tell, these problems stem from a frequent and erroneously held belief that casuals and hooligans in Britain were something to admire. While I might fear someone who'd kick my head in, I probably wouldn't admire him and try to emulate his actions. I've stopped counting the number of people who ask me if I've seen the films Green Street or Football Factory, and although most folk now hold the quality on the pitch in England in awe, a lot of them have a twinkle in their eyes for the good old days when you could try to smash someone's face in with your mates. As the Romanian philosopher Emil Coran wrote, The civilising passage from blows to insults was no doubt necessary, but the price was high. Words will never be enough. We will always be nostalgic for violence and blood. As you may have already realised, thankfully, I didn't get stabbed. This has the twin benefits of A. Me obviously being intact and alive and B. Due to missing out on any publicity this might have caused, it gave me an external factor to point my long finger of blame at. Should this book not sell millions of copies and make me the fortune that I think I so richly deserve? Having already mentioned Verona, here's a quick quiz to check if you've been paying attention. In relation to their origins, what do they have in common with Atalanta? Ha, yes, that's right, they both have Greek influences, and so do Lazio. You wait for one Greek-flavoured team in Italy to come along, and then another two swing past shortly afterwards. Sod's law, that is. is. Società Podistica Lazio was founded in 1900. But it wasn't until 1910 that their football section was set up. Before that point, they were a sports club and remain so today, with sections for more than 40 non-football disciplines. This is where the Hellenic influence comes in. Lazio's colours are sky blue and white, which they were inspired to use by the Greeks due to the fact that the club boasts the aforementioned panoply of sports. And Greece is, you know, the home of the Olympics. Whether or not Lazio have a tug of war team, however, is not clear. Perched on top of the club's badge is an eagle, the symbol of the team. This was also chosen in acknowledgment of Greece. This time, due to its use as a symbol of Zeus, god of thunder and sky. Lazio's nicknames come from their colors and their heraldic symbol. They are commonly referred to as the Bianco Celesti, the white and sky blues, E Bianco Azzori, the white and blues, or Le Aquile the Eagles. Their fans are referred to as Laziali. Since 2010, they've stepped up their efforts at instilling some excitement by getting an eagle to swoop around the Stadio Olimpico, which they share with Roma, pre-match. Needless to say, it's pretty impressive, although one time in 2012, it clearly didn't fancy watching a training session and flew away into the Dolomites. Just before the kick-off of every match, Olympia, for that's her name, does a circuit over the pitch before landing on the arm of her handler. Every game, except for the Derby anyway, they're worried that Roma supporters might launch fireworks and the last thing you want is an angry or startled eagle and thousands of heads for it to claw and gouge. Despite being one of the most famous Italian clubs, Lazio never got their hands on any silverware until the Coppa Italia in 1958 and then had to wait until 1974 for their first Scudetto. Moving into the 80s, Lazio found themselves demoted to Serie B along with AC Milan for one of their players being involved in the Totocalcio betting scandal. And although the next few years proved to be pretty dark for them, the dawn arrived in 1988 with promotion to Serie A. Lazio really became a household name outside of the peninsula following the purchase of the club in 1992 by Sergio Cragnotti. His investment in top-end players included the arrival of Gaza, which dovetailed nicely with Gazzetta Football Italia airing on Channel 4, thus markedly increasing the UK's punters' interest in Calcio. Cragnotti repeatedly broke the club's transfer record, and then the world's record when he bought Hernan Crespo for £35 million. These years were the club's golden period, and with Sven-Goran Eriksson in the dugout, they finally won their second Scudetto in 2000, as well as the Coppa Italia. Was players of the ilk of Sinisa Mihailovic, Alessandro Nesta and Pavel Nedved, they won another two Coppa Italia and got to keep the Cup Winners' Cup in 1999 as that was the last year of the competition. Everything that goes up will eventually come down and Lazio's descent came with a bump when in 2002 Cragniotti was forced out of the club due to financial scandal. A fire sale of their best players followed and brought with it the inevitable deterioration on the pitch. Then, in 2004, the club was bought by Claudio Lotito, who remains as the entirely unpopular president to this day. Since then, they've won the Coppa Italia another two times, beating Sampdoria in 2009, and then to the obvious delight of their fans, Roma, in 2013. Lotito, the president, could be a grotesque caricature of a Scot, such as his appetite for parsimony. In the past, he's shown himself to not be averse to freezing players out and refusing to pay them when it became clear they wanted a new contract or a move to pastures new, an action referred to in Italy as mobbing. Normally, when Juventus come to town, no matter where, they and their fans are on the receiving end of a good number of Juve, Juve, va fanculo, Juve, Juve, fuck right off, chance. But this trend wasn't observed by the Laziale around me for this game. Instead, it was Lotito stuffing himself in the fancy seats who bore the ire of the punters. This being a prestige match would normally be a good opportunity for him to schmooze any guests he might have, but I don't know how he'd react with the entire Corva Nord suggesting he fuck off. It'd certainly make for an awkward moment or ten, but then again, it's his team recording to the banks, and he's demonstrated before that he doesn't hold much truck with dissenting voices. Lazio's homestand is the Corva Nord of the Olimpico, and according to research by the newspaper La Repubblica, they are the sixth most supported team in the country. Their most famous ultras group is Gli Irriducibile Lazio, and so as is normal, in the weeks before the match, I set out to find myself some fans to interview. Going about this in my typical fashion, a quick Google search found me some forums to join. Joining them however, was not as easy as liberating confectionery from infants as it usually is. Now, normally in order to sign up for a forum, you need to fill in an online form with your details, before the final step, in which you need to write a randomly generated code that pops up on screen. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. The Lazio forums, I guess, get trolled quite frequently, and or they're deeply paranoid. This manifests itself in requiring aspiring forum members to answer a very specifically Lazio-themed test as the final step, rather than the typing of the random code norm. So, on one of the forums, after filling in my username, etc., etc., I was presented with the statement, Giorgio Quinalia E, which would be Giorgio Quinalia is... Who he was exactly, we'll come to soon, but in reality, he is only one thing that's dead. Without wanting to be a pedant, but really I spent days trying to find out the answer, so I'm going to be a bloody pedant about this, there is only one possible and correct answer. But the computer refused to accept that dead was it. Philosophically speaking, at least for me, all that we are ceases to be when we shuffle off to wherever and whatever's next. Unless, in an effort to psychologically shield themselves, the Lazio fans deny the reality of Giorgio Quinalia's death. Either that, or they've interned him somewhere in a Schrodinger's cat-style experiment, which, as they arranged his corpse into the box, I imagine would still have hammered home the fact of his passing. But, nonetheless, the correct answer to the question remains dead. After a few days of repeatedly trying various adjectives, nicknames, and things of that nature, all that I was able to achieve was to get myself locked out of the sight for exceeding the number of permissible incorrect answers in single sessions. I was almost at the point of investigating all of the various idioms in Italian for dead, a la the Monty Python dead parrot sketch, when a friend came through for me with the answer, Eureka! There's that Greek influence again. I won't tell you what it is so as to preserve their much-valued privacy, but needless to say, it was something that only a Laziale would know, and it had bugger all to do with death. If you can hear this over the tiny violin that suddenly started playing in the background, I've been rejected loads of times by girls, but never by a computer. I'd like to kid myself that said females at least give me a millisecond of thought, but this algorithm-based swine didn't, and couldn't, even afford me that courtesy. Damn your callousness machines! All's well that ends well, and the emotional scars healed quickly enough for me to find some people who'd be willing to be interviewed. When I asked them what being a supporter meant to them, they, in no particular order, told me this. Luca. A supporter is a football lover and follows his or her team. An ultra is a supporter who has made his passion for the team a priority in life. And Lazio is my priority. Then another, Otello, told me this. I'm an atheist and so it substitutes my religion. And Carlo had this to say. First of all, I distinguish between being a supporter and being Laziale. Regarding latialita, lationis, it's something that you have inside you or you don't. It can't be manufactured. It's a way of life and makes up part of an identity that's over 100 years old. That makes our supporters unique and goes beyond victory or defeat. Latialita means pride, a sense of belonging to the ancient Roman spirit, the appreciation of being part of the biggest multi-sports club in Europe and being ready to suffer. This isn't the first time that supporters have told me that their team acts as a proxy religion for them, or something which their life revolves around. Earlier, I wrote that as far as I'm concerned, football is a false idol. Sure, Stadia act as hubs for their flock to congregate in on a Sunday, but football, at least in its modern iteration, has no moral code, no ethics, and no soul. So, while I disagree with people who find this deeper meaning in football, and a part of me feels sorry for their wives and family... At the same time, don't we all need something to believe in? For a lot of people, that's manifested in their membership of religion. For some others, in science, while others put their trust in love and beauty. Although a football club might seem trivial when compared to the alleged omnipotence of a god or of nature, who am I to judge? As the Bible says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. For as much as we may prefer to play down our flaws, If we could all just get along and not foist our beliefs and their accompanying prejudices on others, surely we'd be happier, no? Or do the artificial constructs of religion, politics or sport exist for exactly this purpose? As a means to differentiate between the believers and the heretics, the freedom fighters and the terrorists, the good guys and the wanks? Well... Talking of getting along, Lazio's fanbase has a reputation of inclining to the right like someone with leg-length inequality. This obviously causes some problems with other teams, for example Livorno, as previously mentioned. Eager to find out what actual supporters thought and lived, rather than hearsay, I asked the guys. First, Luca. In the 90s we had a sporting, political and social identity that as a supporter you could identify with. But these days it's not as strongly felt with the new generation of fans who come to the stadium. Otello told me this. This reputation is something that always makes me suffer. I'm 100% not from the right, and regardless of my political ideas, I think it's ridiculous to play politics at the stadium. There are places for both politics and sport, but not necessarily together. And Carlo. It's a sore point, at least as far as I'm concerned, that that's a label that we get landed with, and we won't tolerate it anymore. Sport and politics are, and always will be, two distinct and separate fields. When I started going to the stadium, both communists and fascists would eat and drink together, would cry and celebrate together, and no one at that time ever dreamed of using Lazio and the visibility gained by the stadium for other goals. Therefore, there shouldn't be any relevance between the two, and whoever tells you that there should be is right wing. As a final note on the supporters, during the first half, I confess to being a touch disappointed by the lack of colour in the Corva Nord. This all changed after the players had eaten their oranges and reapplied their hair gel, or whatever it is that they do in the changing rooms. In the second half, Lazio were shooting towards the Nord, and it was filled with flags flying for the full 45. Tried saying that after a few. One of these stood out for its, let's say, peculiarity. Among the standard edition slogan-based flags, and those bearing famous faces or founding dates, there was one with the face of an elderly woman wearing a floral dress. Think of what a stereotypical Italian housewife in her 60s, but much less attractive, might look like, and you might be picturing Elena Fabrizi. This struck me as being a thoroughly bizarre image to have on a flag in a stadium, but the man sitting beside me explained that she was a famous Roman actor and a huge fan of Lazio, and so her blown-up face has fluttered behind the goal at every Lazio home match for a couple of years. Among the many famous players that have run about for the Bianco Celeste in the past, the most recognisable names to British years come from the 90s onwards, as previously noted. Laziali have had the likes of Gaza, Veron, Nesta and Nedved play in front of them every other week, so choosing a favourite might prove difficult. I asked Luca. My first idol was Giuseppe Signore, the first true bomber, goal scorer, I saw at the stadium. Otello told me this. I've had a few. Quinalia, yes, he of the forum question, Giorgio Quinalia, is, contributed a lot to my approach of being Laziale. Then there have been others who I've loved, even in their more mature years, for example, Matthias Almeida. And Carlo. Without doubt, Giorgio Quinalia. He was an unbeatable worker, both on and off the pitch. So, just who is this Quinalia character? More popular than the galaxy of stars who've pulled on the shirt in more recent years, He spent some of his childhood in Wales, playing a few times for Cardiff before moving to Italy. In a little over 200 games, he scored just shy of 100 goals for Lazio. He ended his career in the NASL playing for the New York Cosmos and was inducted into the USA National Soccer Hall of Fame in 2000. His later years were clouded in scandal, sadly, being accused of money laundering, false accounting and of having links with the Camorra, the Neapolitan Mafia clan. As a fugitive in the eyes of Italian law, he spent his final years in the USA, where he'd become a naturalised citizen in the late 70s, before dying in 2012. For many Laziale, though, he'll always be remembered as il grido di battaglia, the battle cry. Shouting at his charges from the sideline would be the Lazio coach, Eddie Reha. In place since the turn of the year, he replaced the previous incumbent, the Serbian Vladimir Petkovic, who was fired. Kind of. As already noted, the president Lotito isn't one to willingly reach for his wallet, and as a lover of the Latin language, he should probably be quite au fait with Cicero, the Roman philosopher's quotation, non intelligent hominis quam magnum vestigial sit parsimonia. Of course, everyone who speaks Latin is nodding now, but for those of you who don't, that translates as, men don't understand how great a resource parsimony can be." Lotito certainly seems to, as he'd fired Pekovic, when he found out that the Serb had signed a contract to take over his Switzerland coach starting from the summer of 2014. His contract at Lazio would have expired before then, so he'd be free to do what he wanted, but Lotito wasn't at all happy. Fired him, offering him 100000 of the €600,000 he would have been paid had he stayed until June 2014, and replaced him with Eddie Reha. Petkovic's team had been on the slide after beating Roma in the Coppa Italia final in 2013, so something needed to change. But his sacking and Reha's arrival was a farce. See, Petkovic rejected Lotito's severance offer, so hadn't been legally fired. But Reha had been hired, so for a few days Lazio had two coaches. Although they would have found a compromise, it would have been highly entertaining to see the team run out onto the field and then have these two men jostle for primacy in the dugout. After a few days, though, Petkovich's name was officially scored off the books, and Reja's office was his own. The general mood of supporters didn't change during this episode. The majority were still just as anti-Lotito as before, and as previously mentioned, this was not the first time. Bigger protests would come after the match that I'd gone to see, which would turn out to be the farewell home match of the prophet, Hernanes. Sold to Inter on January's transfer deadline day, the Brazilian left the club's training ground at Formelo, weeping, prompting furious fans to head towards Lotito's home and demonstrate outside. Two days later, supporters' groups from the Corps of Nord released a statement, some of which it was very long, read The January transfer window closed with the Umpteen's disappointment. While we've got used to markets where we don't strengthen the team, this time, the winter window had produced a notable weakening of the already mediocre squad that Coach Reha has at his disposal. The dubious and amateur management of the club and despotic rule of Lotito and Tare, the technical director, never ceases to surprise in a negative way and widens the irremediable rift between those who run S.S. Lazio 1900 and those who represent its essence, its people, us. For us Laziali, S.S. Lazio is a way of life, that both sets us apart and unites us, from which we have a traditional identity, passed on from father to son, making us its people. Lotito, with regards to these ideas, has always shown himself to be a poorly concealed intruder. The good of SS Lazio 1900, as demonstrated by the facts, doesn't enter into his priorities. In the build-up to the game, Lazio's German striker, Miroslav Klose, wasn't exactly effusive in his optimism, Lazio had lost the first fixture between the two teams 4-1 and in the days before this one he said we have to find a rhythm, win our battles, have a bit of luck and we'll maybe even be able to get a draw. Conte's got a great team but we don't want to concede another four goals. Then somewhat contradictorily the change in the bench has given us back our enthusiasm. Whoa there Miroslav, I'm getting giddy from your enthusiastic belief. But the game couldn't have started off much better. When 24 minutes in, they were handed a penalty and a red card for Buffon, the Juventus keeper, and the resulting spot kick was dispatched without problems to the delight of the Laziali. All the same, their apparent game plan of sitting deep and hitting Juventus on the break wasn't working well, as all too often the men left up the field, Hernanes and Closa, were left isolated. Neither of them are blessed with pace, and so the Juventus defenders made short work of their breakaway forays. With this frequent possession, the visitors' pressure was more or less constant, but try as they might, they were unable to create too many clear chances on goal. Lichtsteiner, the visiting right back, got an unfriendly welcome, as former home team players often do, being greeted as he was with chants of Zingaro, Zingaro, Zingaro di merda, gypsy, gypsy, shitty gypsy. All throughout the first half, a boy beside me seemed to have a particular form of Tourette's, as at every available moment shouted, Arbitro! Referee! This passed in the second half to what the language most commonly associated with the syndrome is, turning the air a Lazio-tinged blue as he did so. At half time, I spoke to his dad, as upon seeing me scribbling notes, he asked where I was from. When I told him I was Scottish, he was most impressed, and I took a shine to him in return. What can I say? I'm easily wooed. In the second half, Lazio came out of their shell a bit more, making it a much better spectacle. After a fairly lopsided first half, in terms of possession at least, they came out looking like they'd be happy to push Juventus back a bit, but their most expansive attitude was punished when Fernando Llorente looped a header in to draw the score level at 1-1. Near the end, Lazio had two great chances to score. First, a header that was tipped onto the Juventus crossbar by the cat-like Storari, and then the substitute Keita curled a shot onto the post. That was it for pitch-based thrills, but someone in the stands could look forward to an exciting trip home. During the second half, there was an announcement over the tannoy asking for a certain Danilo Qualcosa to make himself known to the nearest, or only, steward to collect his nephew or grandson. My doubt here comes from the fact that it's the same words in Italian. This raised a few chuckles from the other punters, but also begs the question, how can you lose your nephew or grandson? For this match I was joined by friend and accommodation supplier Gemma. A big thank you goes to her for helping me out on my two trips down to Rome and I was interested to hear her thoughts on the stadium experience because normally I'm either by myself in the stands or with a supporter I've found to interview on the day. Although she'd been to football stadiums before she'd never been to the Olympico, so would she offer a fresh perspective on the atmosphere? It was definitely a positive experience. I knew that there would be a great atmosphere, but I thought the crowds would have been a bit rowdier. I enjoyed the fact you could take beer in, but was surprised to see how few people actually drank and smoked during the match. Despite the large-scale stadium being an impressive piece of architecture, I felt that its size actually impeded the atmosphere. The stadium is too big. You don't get the same vibe as you do in smaller-sized arenas. You can't connect with the other supporters in the other areas. Everyone is too far away from each other. As expected, the majority of the supporters were male, and I liked the fact that the people around us were pretty friendly, despite the extensive use of parolacce swearing, from the man in front of us. I wasn't expecting people to boo the other team's players when they were announced on the big screen, and above all, I thought it was very unsportsmanlike to boo some of their own team's players. That was an awkward experience. Although I kind of expected security to be lax, being as we are in Italy, I wasn't expecting there to be the countless number of flares and smoke bombs thrown onto the pitch by supporters, mainly from the hardcore fans in the area next to us. I was especially surprised by the fact that it seemed a completely standard and accepted thing to do, and not only were the security men few and far between, but they were pretty negligent to the antics taking place around them. I thought it was particularly hilarious that the man in front of us was casually smoking a joint. It didn't seem to matter though, as I can't remember seeing any security in our area. The security men all seemed to be on the other side of the stadium, creating a man-wall to stop the unlikely event of the Juventus supporters attacking the Lazio-supporting families. So, and without wanting to sound like him making fun of her, Gemma was shocked by the bad language and unsporting behaviour of our fellow spectators. Poverina! Just a few weeks before she'd been to Goodison to watch Everton lose, but I guess that bitter toffees are politer and more sanguine than I'd imagined. I find their point about security, or the lack thereof, interesting. After years standing in the acrid haze of smoke bombs, flares and joints, I don't pay them particular attention anymore. They're certainly not things you'd expect to find in a British stadium, but beyond the frisson of excitement the first time I saw them, they don't bother me at all. If anything, a match here without a smoke bomb or flare, doesn't feel much like a match that counts. While they may not be great for your lungs, they add something to the atmosphere. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what the smoke's doing to us, but I wouldn't have the stadium without its haze. The smoke might impede your view from the stand for a minute or so, but the relatively low price of a ticket, generally 25 euros, and the blunt fact that if you want to see the match in the best and most comfortable way, it'd probably be better to stay at home and watch it on TV means that I've never had a problem with them. Furthermore, when I was a nipper and armchair viewer, the flares and enormous banners added to the spectacle and exoticness, making the stadiums look much more exciting than the fairly humdrum Scottish stadium experience. During the match, there was a banner unfurled in the Corva Nord in support of a group of Laziali who'd been in prison in Warsaw since the end of November 2013. In Poland for a Europa League match, a total of 22 were arrested and charged with vandalism and aggression towards the police. The Polish police claimed that they were bombarded with stones and bottles by the visiting fans. Most of them were released on cautions or after paying fines, but three spent Christmas in prison, where instead of being visited by Babbo Natale, Santa Claus, the only visitors they'd had were their lawyers. By the time this match rolled around, two remained banged up abroad. Since their arrests there had been a number of banners shown during matches. For example, against Inter, one defiantly stated, Our silence is the sign of your absence. Honour to the lads in Warsaw. Both sides felt somewhat peeved by the whole event, as having things thrown at you isn't very pleasant, while those locked up, along with their fellow supporters, were angry that they had been left in prison and didn't feel that the Italian state had done enough to help them. As previously stated, violence has no place in football and while many people here see the stadium as an ideal place to sfogare, let off some steam, there are so many other ways to do this that don't involve hurting others. As Rodney King said during the LA riots, can we all get along? Apparently not. Before the game, some Laziali who were stopped and searched by the police were found to be carrying fireworks, knives and knuckle dusters. Needless to say, there followed arrests and banning orders. Elsewhere, A bus full of Juventus supporters was hit by objects as it was travelling through the city earlier in the day. Thankfully, I never had call to quote Rodney King or regret this trip. Post-match, after a couple of drinks on the Saturday, followed by a very lazy Sunday, I headed back up to Genoa, intact and all the happier for it, and most importantly, stab free. as the Romanian philosopher Emil Korans wrote Mm, I don't know the pronunciation. With players of the ilk of Sinișa, the Polish police the Polish police that's difficult to say